So we'll look at uh, pain management under nursing care for clients who have neurosensory disorder. Um, infective pain management include two major things. It includes one, the use of pharmacological therapy or therapeutic agent to manage the pains when we use medication. And uh, it also involves non-pharmacological pain management techniques where we do aromatherapy, we do um, distraction and other sensory imagery uh, procedures that would distract our mind away from our pain management. And uh, sometimes the nurse needs to have the skills to do these things. I remember I was at work one day, I was on the mental health unit, and this patient came in in the morning, she was already on the unit and she came in to the nursing home like around 4 a.m. and she was shouting, help, help, I need help, I need help. They are running after me, they chasing me after me, can you help me, please help, help. Then I walked to her, I asked her what's happening. She said she's hearing voices, the voices are irritating and they are so loud and they are chasing after her. So I was like, okay, um, do you want to go to the choir room? She said, sure. To go to the choir room, sure. But it's not going to, I said, okay, it's going to help you. Just calm down, calm down, take deep breath, open your mouth, breathe. Take deep breath in and close your lips, do pause lips, let's, do it. let's see what's going to happen. Can I offer you an ice, uh, ice water in a cup? She said, yeah. So I gave her one cup of water. And uh, she drank the water, but yes, still it couldn't help. Now, then I went to her chat, looked in her chat, and I saw that she had PRN B52, where we gave thoraxine, she had a thoraxine order, she had Benadryl, and uh, she had um, thoraxine Benadryl, and she had lorazepam or Ivan. She had this medication to be given to her whenever she's having those episodes. So I went into her chair, I saw this medication into her MAR and I got it. I brought it to her. Took the medication after a while, it was still happening. Then I got to know that uh, she was due to go home the following day. And I was like, hey, I can give you some ear pods, put it in your ear, lock your two ears, and then uh, it's gonna stop. Then if it stops, you can see what next can we do. I gave her the ear pods, she put it in her ear, it stopped hearing the voice, it couldn't help. Then I was like, okay, what can I do next? It was in the morning almost 3 a.m. going to 4. I had another client who was going to behavior, and I had to make my morning report. I had to complete two admissions. I had to do everything before 7 a.m. So I was kind of like running behind time. So I was like, um, so I, I went back out and I came back to the choir and I was like, hey, I'm gonna help you. I need you to help me. Um, I learned that you're gonna be discharged very soon, right? She said, yeah. So I was like, this, with this happening to you, you cannot be discharged early. And that's true. We're not gonna discharge you when you are still hearing voices, when you are endorsing active auditory hallucination. We cannot discharge you. And I'm like, this is going to hamper a discharge process. So I'm willing to help you and you have to help me. Let's do this together and let's achieve it. So this can only be done if you and I work together. Now, here's the thing. You have to show me your best behavior, do everything possible to make sure that these voices are distracted. Then we can be on a good path. Then the discharge process is going to keep going. But if you do not go with the best path to, to discharge, we're not going to be able to to, to, to distract you. So, like, okay, can I have some colorings and uh, 
with some drawings. I want to do some printing and drawing. I said, sure. I went to the cabinet, I opened the cabinet, I, get, I, I got her some uh, markers, got some coloring pencils and other things, and brought it to the choir room. And then because she wants to go home, so she was able to uh, work with me. We worked together and she started drawing, doing things, and she stopped hearing the voices. After a few minutes, she was like, can I go back to my room? I was like, sure. And she walked back to her room, fell asleep, sound, she went to bed. Now, these are methods we have to learn to cope uh, or to strategize for patients who have an active uh, problem. It could be pains, it could be mental health problems, it could be even message on the floor. These are skills that we have to learn to make sure that we are able to like, uh, handle these things when the client is going through active problems. So we have so many different skills we learn when it comes to pain management, it includes both pharmacological and non-pharmacological. The, client, the clients have a right to adequate assessments, management of pains, uh, so the nurses are accountable for the assessment. So in professional organization, we need to carry on this assessment to be able to come up with good uh, treatment plan and implementation for the patient. If the assessments are not right, the client cannot have the treatment plans the client would need. So we do this. Now, um, nurses have a priority responsibility for continual assessment of the pain, of the client's pain level, and to provide individualized interventions. And that's why we ask the client, uh, are you having pain? Where's the pain? Uh, how do you rate the pain on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the highest, one being the lowest? Now, some clients have this pain level, the pain scale. According to the pain scale, that's how we provide for them pain medication. So the client gonna have like a non-narcotic pain medication, they're gonna have narcotic pain medication. Depending on the pain level, we can give them adults as uh, acetaminophen or Tylenol, or we can give them some other hard narcotic pain medication. Now, you're going to ask the client, what's your pain level now? You have to understand that some of the clients will always exaggerate. They're going to say, my pain is 8 or 10. Now, if I ask you your pain is 8 or 10, and I'm seeing you standing up, oh, okay, I'm having a back ache. What's happening to you? Oh, I got a back ache, and now the pain is so unbearable. The pain is 8 or 10. Uh, can I have a cold to drink? Can I do this? Now I'm seeing you telling that the pain level is 8 or 10 and you are doing something else that does not show me that indeed the pain is 8 or 10. Now, what happens on the unit is not what we have in the end class. In the end class, we go strictly with the client pain level and provide treatment for them according to what the client says in the end class. On the unit, um, if I have a client who says they have a bad A, it's 8 or 10, and I'm seeing them not showing me the expression, the interpretation of that 8 or 10, I'm not going to give you 8 or 10 pain medication. I might give you a 4 or 10 or 6 or 5 or 10. If I see you rolling or having really serious excruciating pain, then I can think I'm giving you pain med at that level. But in the end class, it is subjective what the patient says for pain is what we go back in the angles, just to know that. Now, um, we assess the pain 
and we'll provide a plan of this pain medication, we go back to reassess them in 30 minutes to an hour. And that's the reason why when you work in the nursing station or in the nursing homes, in the hospitals, wherever you work, when you administer a pain medication on the computer, after 30 minutes, you're gonna have a blur gonna pop up. There'll, there'll be a pop-up asking you how was the pain medication, what's, what's the pain medication respond? Was it effective? Was it not effective? To what extent it was effective? Does the client need second dose? So they will ask you this question on the computer in the MRI. You have to go in and click on it and tell the computer that the client was effective in the pain, in, in, in her in his or her pain management technique or the meds yourself. You go and click on it and then it, it becomes effective. So we, we see these things a lot and we have to go like how we see them. Now, um, when it comes to pain management, um, there are categories of pains, and we need to understand these categories of pain. There are four categories of pains when it comes to pain management. Um, under pain management, let's look at the four categories under pain management before coming to the pain medication. So we have number one, we have what we call the acute pains. Acute pains. That's the first level of pains we look at, the first category. Under acute pains, what is important under acute pains? Acute pains is temporary. Acute pain is usually self-limiting and it resolves with tissue healing. That is the characteristics of acute pain. Now, in acute pain, um, we have a particular physiological responses or some, some physiological responses. Those responses will either um, make the client to fight back the pain or to have a flat response. So in acute pain, we have fight or flight action in acute pain. The client might either fight back the pain or we have flight, meaning they might either want to escape the pain and do other things that will help them to alleviate the pains in acute pains. In acute pains, when the client have this fight or flight response or responses in acute pain, the client going to have certain symptoms that you and I will see and know that the, and know that the pain is acute. They're going to have those symptoms like tachycardia, they're going to have hypertension, uh, they're going to have, uh, I'm sorry, hypertension. With pains, you're going to have hypertension. They're going to have anxiety. They're going to have diaphoresis. And they're going to have muscle tension. So imagine yourself sitting in the end and ask you in a slide or a black question. What are the symptoms the patient will present when the patient has an acute pain that is causing serious problem in the patient AD or, or for the time? Just think on yourself. When you have a toothache, what happens to you when you have a toothache? When you have a bite, a severe headache, what's going to happen to you? Your BP will not drop. It's going to keep increasing because you are having pains. And all these things are things you're going to see in the ambulance. So we look at these things and uh, we provide care for, for them according to how they are presented. The client is going to have um, some behavioral changes. No one is going to be having severe pain and be sitting, sitting there laughing. That's the first thing. In acute pain, the patient is going to have some facial grimace or uh, grimacing. They're going to have facial grimacing uh, in acute pain for behavior or, 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 or manifestations. 
The client is going to have moaning. The client will moan. These are behavioral uh, symptoms of acute pain. The, the client is going to also have um, flinching and moaning. The client will have flinching. The client will have flinching. The client will, will become flinching. And the client is going to have, the client will be guarded. Where the pain is, there will be a garden in that area. If the client is having abdominal pain, you will see them guarding the place, or like, there will be like a bar, they will bar down over the abdomen as they walk around. Oh, I'm in pain. Mm. Uh, you will see those things happen to the patient, and definitely you will know exactly what's happening to the patient at that point in time. You will see these things. For acute pain, the nurse should be aware that a client not exhibiting physiological or behavioral responses does not mean that the client does not have the pain. In the end place, I'm saying all of this to say, sometimes some culture, some culture does not allow us to express the pain that we have. Like certain culture in Asia, they do not express pain. You have seen people who go to labor delivery and uh, they are in labor, they are, there's, a, there's an active contraction. And they are moving around, just tweaking their hands or their finger, pressing their finger, or they have a cloth in their hand, just squeezing the cloth, or they have something in their mouth, just biting on it. And that's how they express that pain. Now, if a client does not also pre uh, present with these uh, behaviorous uh, symptoms, moaning, guarding, flinching, um, grimacing, if the client does not appear with these things, that does not mean the client is not having pain. The client might be having pain. But the client just because of cultural problem, the client might not be able to express the pain the client is going through. That is common in, in, the, in nursing. So that's understand that. Now, in acute pain, we treat the underlying condition in acute pain. When we treat the underlying condition, definitely the pain goes away in acute pain. The, treat, the goal is to treat what causes the pain. And that's it. The pain subsides, the pain goes away. That is for acute pain. Then for chronic pain, the second level of pain we talk about, we have chronic pains. Now, in chronic pains, let's look at chronic pains. Um, in chronic pains, what's happening in here? In chronic pains, um, chronic pain is not protective like acute pain. We said acute pain is protective, chronic pain is not protective. Chronic pain is an ongoing or recurrent pain that comes and goes for a long period of time. That becomes chronic pain. And uh, it lasts more than three months. And also it persists beyond tissue healing. The tissues might heal and we still experience chronic pain. Now we have to understand the differences between acute pains and chronic pains along with their presentations or what we call the signs and symptoms when it comes to pain management. Um, the physiological responses do not surely increase the vital sign. In acute pain, the client might not have those things I talk about. In, uh, in chronic pains, the client might not have those things I talk about in acute pain. Example, tachycardia. The client might not have tachycardia. The client might not have hypertension. The client might not have facial grimaces. The client might have other symptoms, but not according to what we look at in acute pain with those increment or those increase in those viral signs systemically. So the client might not have an chronic pain, but the client will still be in pain uh, when the client has a chronic pain. Now, in chronic pain, um, the client viral signs can be actually lower than normal 
in response to chronic pain. That's one thing I want to understand. In the chronic pain, the client vital signs might be lower than normal. In acute pain, the client vital signs are higher than normal. In chronic pains also, the client can have depression. The client can have depression in chronic pains. Um, the client can have fatigue in chronic pains. The client can have depression. The client can have fatigue. The client can also have decreased level of function. The client can have decreased level, decreased level of functioning. Um, the client can also have disability that would be as the result of the, um, the pain. The client can have that. Um, chronic pain might not have a known cause and it might not respond to intervention. Those are things you want to ask them about chronic pain. It might be idiopathic without any known cause. Chronic pain, uh, we, the, 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 the treatment goal for chronic pain is, is aimed at, uh, it, it's, it aims at relieving the pain. That's the chronic pain. In acute pain, our goal is to alleviate or to look at the underlying condition in acute pain. In chronic pain, we want to alleviate the pain symptoms. And uh, in chronic pain, it can be classified as a chronic cancer pain or it could be a chronic non-cancer pain. That's how we classify chronic pain. Then we have the next level of pain. The next pain level we have um, is what we call the nociceptive pain. It's a third level, it's called the nociceptive pain. Now, in the nociceptive pain, um, under here, the client under here, the pain arises from damage or inflammation to tissues that are uh, not part of the central nervous system or the peripheral nervous system. So you have pains deriving from other organs that are not part of the peripheral or the central nervous system for nociceptive pains. In nociceptive pains, um, it is just there is an activation of normal painful process or painful stimuli. Once the stimuli that will trigger the pain is activated, the client begins to feel the nociceptive pains. It is usually it is usually troubling, aching, and it can be localized. For nociceptive pains, it can be uh, troubling, it can be localized, and it can also be what we call um, aching pains. In under here, we have two distinct type of nociceptive pain. There are two distinct type of this of nociceptive pains. Now, the first type under here, it is important to know these things. The first type of pains under nociceptive pain is somatic pains. The client can have somatic pains. Now, somatic pains could be in the bones. So, these bone pains are not transmitted by, by the central nervous system or by the peripheral nervous system. So, under this nociceptive pains, it's not triggered, it's not transmitted by the PNS or the CNS. It comes from bones and other parts of the body that can be triggered, and then there's a stimulus that will trigger it, and the pain are felt in there. Now, under here, you have bones, multiple somatic pains, 
thing derived from our muscles, from our bones, from our skin, or from other connective tissues. So there are three things under here. You have one, the bones pain, you have two, the muscles pain, and you have three, it will be from connective tissues in our body. The pains could derive from this origin on somatic pain. Now, then we have the second aspect of nociceptive pains. Under here, we have visceral pains. Visceral. Now, if you know what is visceral, already know what I'm talking about under here. Then we have visceral pains. Under visceral pains, the clients are going to have pains coming from internal organs, such as like the intestines. So you're going to have like under here, they are from internal organs. You're going to have under here, they are from internal organs. Uh, that you have the intestines and other things on here. Example is our intestines um, on our, the visceral organs. Now, under here, the client will have stomach pains of in, uh, or, 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 or some, <coughs> or some uh, uh, intestine pains. It can cause referred pains in the body to location that is not having the pain. So under here, we can have referred pains. So when the client is having stomach pain, the pain will refer. There will be a referred pains under here. Now, I want you to understand these things and know exactly how they're going to work because they are important to know what are visceral pains, what are somatic pains. You have to understand these things according to the English. And when we did AA pharmacology, we talk about different categories of pains. We talk about the uh, somatic pain, the visual pains, and other things. How do we provide management of these things when the client is in pain? We talk about these things. Now, under here, you have referred pains. Like in the case of uh, appendicitis, when the client has appendicitis, what happens to the appendicitis? There is a referred pains in, uh, in, in the left lower area. The pain is localized in the red lower abdomen at the McBurner's point. There, there we are having the um, at, at the McBurner's uh, point. There, there we are having the pains for the appendicitis. Now, but in the case of a referred pains, the client going to have pains on the other side or do rebound tenderness. Also, when the client is having a a, a when the client is having tumor pregnancy, the pain radiates towards the one, the left side of the shoulder. The other, the, the other condition that we're going to see referred pains. And those referred pains are what we call the visceral pains. You're going to see them under here. But that's what happens now. So these are things we look at under here. Then the last thing that we're talking about under here will be uh, the last thing is what we call the neuropathic pains. So the last thing becomes the fourth one, which is the neuropathic pains. Now, in the neuropathic pains, what's happening in here? In, uh, in the neuropathic pains, the pain arises from abnormal or damaged nerves. So we have nerve damage. In the case of us, sometimes we have diabetic neuropathy. Sometimes we have peripheral neuropathy. Those conditions in which our nerves become damaged. Pains derived from those areas, from those damaged regions. Like you're gonna feel like when you are walking, you are walking on thorns or on needles. You have those fine needle pricking 
you've had that feeling of nail pricking your feet or on a part of your some part of your body. That is nerve damage. That, that is what we call neuropathic pain. Now, these pains on the neuropathic pain, they differ from, from the notice pain we just talked about. Um, in this case, there is an abnormal painful stimulus. It includes like a phantom pain. So, example on the, here, we have phantom pains. What are phantom pains? We have phantom pains on the here. Now, phantom pains are pain that you have your arm, like this, this, this is the client arm. This is the client, this is the client finger. The client has five fingers. And all of a sudden, the client had an accident. And the client cut off, the client hands got amputated. So the client arm was amputated. The client has one, just one limb. So this portion of the hand has been cut off and it's not there anymore. And the client reports to that he or she is still pain in her index finger. Pains in index finger. How can you feel pains in your index finger when the entire five fingers were cut, cut off or they have been amputated? Yes, you can feel pains in the index finger despite it has been amputated. Now, because these fingers were controlled by nerves, so these nerves contain <clears throat> different pathways. So you have the pathway controlling these fingers of nerves coming in here. Um, we we know that this finger part, this hand is already cut, it's already amputated. But remember, even the hand got amputated, but the nerve pathway that controls the five fingers are still within the uh, are still within the storm limb. So in this case, we still feel pains that in we still feel pains in one of the fingers that are cut off. That pain that we are feeling, despite the finger or the hand is not there anymore, that pain is what we call the phantom pain. So phantom pains will fall under the neuropathic pains. In the end, they will ask these questions about these pains, and we have to understand where are we with this pain management and this pain level. Uh, the client can also have like a spinal cord injury. When the client has spinal cord injury and having pains, it could be direct, it could be it will fall under neurotic pains. The client could also have like, I think, a diabetic neuropathy. The client has a diabetic complication. This diabetic complication led to damaging of the nerve cells. So when these nerve cells got damaged, the client resulted into having neurological pain. And these pains are referred to as um, neuro neuropathic pain. So the client will feel these pains. Now, under here, like I said, we describe these pains as intense, shooting, burning. But the best description of neurotic pains would be the client is having pain. We call it the client is having like a pins and needles. So the client will have pins and needles and needles breaking them. That's what the client is going to have in the case of neuropathic pain. They'll have, like, like I said, you'll, you'll, they'll feel like something is breaking them on their feet or where the pain is occurring. They'll feel that. So many cases, the client is going to have these symptoms of pins and needles breaking them to wherever the pain is. Um, under here, our goal is to provide for them adjuvant medication. You remember we talked about adjuvant pain medication? The adjuvants, the adjuvant, um, the adjuvants pain medication. Now, all this adjuvant pain medication, we talked about the adjuvants pain medication. 
Under here, we said um, we said the adjuvants in medication. We combine other drugs with other medication for different class or different classes to provide pain elimination. Example: We talk about like the antidepressants. Remember, we talk about another one. We talk about the amitriptyline. Amitriptyline. We said is an antidepressant that can be used for pain management. When a client has neurotic pains, we can use amitriptyline to combine and provide pain medication. We talk about like a gabapentin, a neurotin medication, a drug called neurotin. Neurotin can be administered in a case of neurotic pains. There are a lot of antidepressants that we use to manage uh, neurotic pains. And we also we can also use some other antispasmodic, antispasmodic, spasmodic agent, anti-spasmodic agents. We can use this, this anti-spasmodic agents. We can also use muscle relaxant. We use muscle relaxant um, to treat this neuropathic pain. So these are the four categories of pains with example that we need to know. So when we go over the end class, we want to have complete domain over these things to make it to be efficient in the end class. It is important that we look at these things. There are so many other things we look at, and uh, I want you to go back and look at them. We talk about, we do um, the pain management. So let me just tell you what's happening here. So on the pain management, we talk about two things under here. We have the pharmacological management, we have the farm versus the non-pharmacological pain management. Now, on the farm, we have uh, narcotics medication, we have the narcotics, and we have the what? The non-narcotics medication. Now, on this non-narcotics, we have the NSAIDs, we talked about them last time, we have the um, we have the adjuvants, we have the adjuvants, and we have the acetaminophens under here. These are the three categories of non-narcotics pain medication we use. Now, all, all of these narcotics is where we have all those the morphines and other narcotics. Now, then we have the non-pharmacological pain management techniques. Where we talk about cutaneous pain management of the skin, have you gone for therapy? They have those T, those things material, what a TNS, and they place it on your back and they switch it on. It like a, it, it has some creeping sensation where the pain is occurring. Those are skin, those are what we call transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. We call them TENs, TENs. Those are what we call the TENs, transcutaneous. Electrical uh, uh, nerve stimulation, trans, we call it transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation (TENs). You can read on it uh, on Google or uh, on YouTube. The 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 the, the dual at of the chiropractic areas around for uh, therapy. Um, then the client can also use heat or cold compressors to alleviate the pains. Um, it is just to interrupt the pain pathway. Um, so now the client can do massage. Massage is also another therapy we use to, to disrupt the pain pathway. 
Sometimes we use uh, distraction techniques which include ambulation. Oh, you're having pains. Walk around. You walk around. Do deep breathing, like I said earlier on. Do deep breathing. We do, uh, we watch television. We play music. Those are all techniques that fall under non fundamental techniques when it comes to pain management. We do relaxation techniques. Under relaxation, we have yoga. We do yoga. We do meditation. We do progressive muscle relaxing. We do cupping. Cupping is where the, like I like, I like to do cupping. I have done it two different times. You go where they have, um, they have those smaller, um, they, they put, they put, they put uh, something, they will create cups on your back and drain out the bad blood when you have bad age and all that. I have done it three, three, three different times. It is very popular in some states. Some states is not as popular as compared to other states. So we have cupping and other things. We have imagery. Wherein, when you're having the pains and you focus on pleasant memories, it helps to work the strike from the pains. We have acupuncture. Acupuncture is a Chinese or Asian traditional way of pain alleviation. We do these things. We have um, elevation of the Painful legs, the edematous legs, we elevate the leg that is painful. All these things can help us to work. It can help to, all these things can help us to alleviate pains. Those are all non fibromyalgia pain management under there. So these are things to look at. For the adjuvants, pain, under here, for the adjuvants, we have the anticonvulsants. I wrote the other day, the adjuvants, all the adjuvants. You have one, the anti-convulsant. Anti-convulsant can be used as anti management medication. The anti-convulsant, example for anti-convulsant is carbamazepines. Uh, under here you have carbamazepines. Mazepines is a number of anti-convulsant medications. We also have anti-anxiety agent. We also provide anti-anxiety agent. Um, example is diazepines, the diazepines or lorazepine for under here. And we also have like a TCAs, the tricyclic antidepressant. Example I about is the amitriptyline. Amitriptyline uh, is an example of the tricyclic antidepressant. And lastly, we have um, we, 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 we have uh, antihistamines. We have antihistamines also. Antihistamines can also help to alleviate pains on our adjuvant. Example of that is the hydroxyzine. We have hydroxyzine uh, or, or visceral. Can also, it's also an antihistamine to alleviate pains. We also have the glucocorticoids. Glucocorticoids, corticoids, they are, the example is dexamethasone and other uh, medication that will fall on a um, glucocorticoid. And sometimes we also have odonstetron, which is called zofrin. So we can also give the plan odonstetron. Um, it's an anti-emetics. We can also provide anti-emetics for the client. Example is odonstetron. Ondansetron is an anti-emetic, Ondansetron, or it's called Zofrin. So all of these drug classes can be used to provide adjuvant things, medication for the client. Any questions?
Any question? So let's look at meningitis and seizures. Let's look at meningitis and seizure disorder. Now, this is important because when it comes to the dentist, we have to provide adequate care for our clients with meningitis. Uh, meningitis is an inflammation of the meninges. And uh, we, all, we all know that the meninges is um, a membrane that protects the brain and the spinal cord. So the spinal cord and the brain, they are encased or they are enclosed by a membrane called the meninges. So in the case of illness, ill conditions, it could be viral, it could be bacterial condition, wherein bacteria or viruses find their way into that particular membrane, they're going to cause infection and that infection is what we call meningitis. Um, in meningitis, we have the septic, which is the bacterial meningitis, which is dangerous, and we have the aseptic, which is the viral meningitis. So bacteria is called septic meningitis, and viral is called aseptic meningitis. Bacteria is more dangerous compared to viral meningitis. So the septic is more dangerous compared to the what? Aseptic meningitis. Um, the aseptic one, which is the viral type, it resolves without treatment, without medication. Unlike the septic one, which is the bacteria, which would need a serious intervention, serious antibiotic treatment, and serious symptomatic treatment because it is life-threatening if we do not provide the best treatment or the requisite treatment regimen, the client might lose their life when it comes to septic meningitis. Um, these conditions come, come in after a viral infection, mostly for viral meningitis. When a client has a viral problem like a HIV, other viral illnesses, the end result or the complication might lead to viral meningitis, wherein the viral cross the blood-brain barrier and enters into the membrane called meninges and can cause infection, and that's going to be viral meningitis. Um, and when it comes to bacterial meningitis, the client has a high contagiosity. The client is contagious. The client can infect other people a lot. And that's why when a client has viral bacterial meningitis, the client needs to be in a seclusion or the client to be in a private room. Okay. Now, so the prognosis, that, that is, the treatment depends on how early we diagnose the bacterial meningitis or how early we begin uh, or we begun providing treatment for the client. Um, there are three vaccines for different bacterial meningitis. One is available as a high-risk population, such as during the college student. You heard that sometimes ago in New York on NYU campus, there was an outbreak of bacterial meningitis on the campus, wherein the students were forced to take the vaccine. Sometimes there can be outbreak of these bacterial meningitis on campuses around the US or outside the US. You're going to have that. So there are vaccines for these, uh, uh, for these um, 
condition. So the vaccines are there, but I'm not concerned about them because um, you can look at you can look up the vaccine. So what I'm concerned about here is um, how can we differentiate bacteria from viral meningitis? If you look in our pediatrics uh, presentation on the pediatrics, when you look, we listen to neurological disorder on PEDS, we talk about the difference between the how bacteria will present and viral present. And we look at it based on the CSF, the cerebral spinal fluid that I asked you to do yesterday to do spinal tap or to do lumbar puncture. Because we do lumbar puncture in these conditions to know exactly what is the cause of the meningitis, whether it is bacteria or it is viral. We do lumbar tap. So if you did the lumbar tap yesterday after the assignment, you read it, you should know what I'm talking about here. Now, for um, we, for the for the viral meningitis, it comes after mumps, measles, herpes, and other West Nile or other viral condition. It comes after that. For the bacterial meningitis, it is a bacterial-based infection that comes after when a client has like pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia. The client has like other ear infection, like what is media. It comes after those conditions. Um, or the client might have other nursery meningitis conditions uh, like hemophilia influenza those are all conditions that uh, the client might have and the client might be exposed to bacterial meningitis and we have another type of type we call fungal meningitis this, this is not very common it is rare but we have one that is caused by fungus so that is possible um, we have the presentation the presenting symptoms for meningitis under here, when the client has meningitis, the client has uh, findings. The client is going to present with a uh, constant headache. So the client is going to have a constant headache, that's one. The client will have headache. Um, the client can have nausea, rigidity, rigidity. The client can have, uh, the client can present with a uh, photophobia. These are the cardinal signs of meningitis. Whether it's viral or bacteria, the client is going to have these cardinal symptoms photophobia. Lights, when the client is in the room, that's why we want to dim the lights for clients who have meningitis. Um, then, for our objective symptoms, the client will have fever and chills. The client is going to have nausea and vomiting. The client is going to have altered level of consciousness. The client will have um, uh, the client will have confusion, disorientation, lethargy. The client is going to have difficulty arousing, and the client might go into coma if we do not provide the, the treatment at the point that is needed. Um, the client will have. Two physical tests done and the bowl will be positive. The client will have positive Brzezinski sign and the client will have positive Kirtney sign. So the Kirtney, the Kirtney and the Brzezinski, the Brzezinski sign will be positive. So they will have positive Brzezinski and positive Kirtney sign. Now you want to know by description what is Kirtney sign, what is Brzezinski sign. Look up those two things. Um, we've talked about it a lot, but I want you to go and define them. I'm not going to talk about them now. Define what is 
Kirby sign. What is Bronziski sign? The Bronziski is spelled as B R U. It's B R U D. Um. So the Bronziski is spelled as B R U D Z I N S K I. Bronziski. So you have the Bronziski sign will be positive. And you have the Kirkney, it's K-E-R-N-I-G. Kirkney sign will also be positive when it comes to meningitis. So you want to define Bronziski and Bron... The Bronziski, you want to define Kirkney sign. Look, look, the two, look at the two and look at how do we... What is meant by Kirkney and what is meant by Bronziski sign? The client is going to have hyperactive deep tendon reflexes. The client will have tachycardia. The client will have seizure. The client will have red macular rashes, And the client will have irritability and restlessness. These are the signs of meningitis the client is going to have. The client might not have all these signs apparently at the same time, but the client might have the nautilus rigidity. The client might have the seizure, the client might have the headache, they might have the photophobia, they might have positive Brzezinski and Kirkney sign. Those are the cardinal signs for medical surgical um, message meningitis. Now, when we did pediatrics, we have different signs for neonates, different signs for younger-age children, and we have different signs for older children. We made these different signs available, they are there because in the children, in the neonates, you might not have nocular rigidity, you might have other signs that might give us clue that the client is having meningitis. So you can refer to the audio or not neurological system for the pediatrics, it will give you a better description of these things. But this is for message. Um, so we do laboratory tests, we do um, urine, throat, nose and blood culture. We look at the CBC level. The most important test we do is the CSF, the cerebrospinal fluid analysis. Because the CSF will drain fluid from the meninges, and that fluid drain will tell us exactly why the client is having bacteria or viral meningitis. Because our clue is the client will have general syndrome meningitis. So we want to know if it's bacteria or it is fungal. So when the client has a meningitis diagnosis or the client has the symptoms, our goal is to isolate the client until we can until we can diagnose whether it's bacteria or viral because it is very contagious when it's bacteria. Um, the client will do the CSF analysis. It's the most definitive test. Now in the class, there will be other tests that we do for this condition, but the CSF analysis is the most Test is a test of choice for this for this particular condition. Um, we do the, the there will be elevated blood where blood cells there will be elevated protein there will be decreased blood glucose when it is bacteria. Now, if you listen to the, to the order in pediatrics, when it is bacterial infection, there will be decreased blood sugar. There will be um, there will be decreased blood sugar. There will be hypoglycemia if it is viral. There will be normal blood sugar. Um, we do for the client what we call counter immunoelectrophoresis. 
Another test we do for the plant is the CIE, is the counter immuno uh, electrophoresis test. This can be done on the CSF also, um, whether it is viral or protozoa, we can know this. The client can do a CT scan or an NMR, uh, or MRI for this condition. The client can do CT scan and MRI. If you did MRI, you will see that the client also can do MRI when the client has meningitis. And the reason you can do it, it is in the anklets. That's why I actually to, to look at the indication for MRIs. So you want to ask the client, like I said, that is our goal. If the client has any symptoms of meningitis, the first thing is we want to ask the client so that the client can be in a better position to prevent the spread of the illness to other conditions. We want to start an uh, immediate antibiotic. We want to continue droplet precaution until the client starts antibiotic for 24 hours and oral and, and, oral and nasal secretion are no longer infection. So after 24 hours, we can, we can stop the droplet because at that point in time, when the client starts the drugs, the antibody treatment for 24 hours, the client, does, the client will not have any infection particle within the nasal or the oral secretion. So the client should be on that for the first 24 hours of starting the antibiotic treatment when the client has meningitis. Um, the client we put in, we drop the droplet precaution and implement thinner precaution for the client. We implement fever reduction measure, such as giving the client cooling blankets. We also provide the client with a quiet environment because noise, noisy environment can irritate the client when the client is having uh, seizure, uh, meningitis. We also dim the light that the client will have photophobia when the client has meningitis. We also decrease, like I said, environmental stimulus. We minimize the light. We maintain bare rest and elevate the bare head up to 30 degree because the client might be having increased intracranial pressure when the client has meningitis. The meningitis is getting inflamed, it's infectious. So there is a possible increment in ICP. That's why we are elevating the bare head. Then the client will avoid coughing, sneezing, which can increase the ICP. If the client is coughing, sneezing, that has the propensity of increasing the, in, the, 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 the in, intracranial pressure. Um, and you should know the normal, at this point in time, I hope we all know the normal ICP. We look at, um, we replace little lights as director. Um, other other clients are at risk for secondary complications like pneumonia. So the client can have pneumonia as complication. We give the client sectorism. Um, we combine it with vancomycin. Those are antibodies, strong antibodies that we give to treat the condition. We can give anticonvulsant when the client is at risk for conversion. We give the phenytone or dalantine. We give that anticonvulsant. The client might take NSAID, uh, NSAID fever medication or the client might take acetaminophen to fight the fever and the headache. Uh, the client can also take refumpins, ciprofloxacins, and the client can take sectorizing. These are all prophylactic treatment when other clients have been exposed to meningitis or other clients have come in contact with the client who's diagnosed with meningitis. They can take these drugs for um, possible uh, preventive measures. These are things we, we do under here. Any question on meningitis? Now, 
Let's look at seizure and epilepsies. Now, um, there's a reason why I'm trying to talk about this first before seizure and epileptic condition. So, um, in seizure, every seizure condition or uh, every seizure condition will we have, oh, I'm sorry, every epilepsis will have seizure, but not every seizure is deriving from epilepsis. So you can have other conditions, you're gonna have seizure, but every time you have epileptic, epileptic condition, you're gonna have seizure. Now, seizures are abrupt, abnormal, excessive, uncontrollable electrical discharges from the neurons. So when the neurons are firing more than expected and they cannot we cannot control the impulse release. That's when the client will have seizure. And when I talk about the tests we did yesterday here, the um, the EEG, we said this test determine how much impulse are being released when the client has a seizure. And it is the it, it, it is the test, the procedure of choice when the client has seizure. That's what I'm talking, I'm talking about. Um, then under here, there are three categories of seizure or classification. Those three categories we have generalized seizure, we have partial seizure, we have unclassified seizure. So generalized seizure is like the both brain hemisphere. Is being uh, are being affected by excessive release of electrical impulses. Partial seizure is just one portion of the brain is being affected, and uh, when we have unclassified seizure, it is wherein the seizure does not have. We, do, we cannot say it is partial or it is uh, generalized. It's just between. So meaning it's unclassified. We look at that. Now there are so many risks. Factor that can be the seizure. It could be metabolic disorders, like uh, in the case of a hypoglycemia or in the case of hyponatremia, the client can have seizure in those instances. It could be some other genetic predisposing factor can lead to the client having seizure. Some clients are born normal as they go as they grow along, they have other conditions that might expose them to seizure, like in the case of head trauma, concussion, huge RT, a road traffic accident that might lead to the client having seizure. Some client might have cerebral edema, like tumor in the brain, that might expose them to having seizure. Some client might have might 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 be exposed to toxins for babies, teratogens. Can expose them to toxins that might lead, lead them to having seizure. There are different uh, things that can cause seizure: stroke, heart disease, brain tumor, hypoxia, substance withdrawal syndrome, substance acute substance withdrawal, fluid and irregular imbalances. All of these things are all risk factor for seizures. But we have seizures. So, on a generalized seizure, I'm going to be very brief on this because we have a huge document on them. Um, on a generalized seizure, uh, generalized seizures, on a here, we have the tonic, tonic seizure. 
We had formerly we had a tonic chronic seizure under here. We have the tonic seizure. Uh, we have the tonic seizure under here also. We also have the chronic seizure under here. We also have under here the myoclonic seizure, the myoclonic seizures, and we have the atonic or the akinetic seizure, the akinetic or the atonic seizure under here. So these are the seizures that fall under the generalized seizure. There are five. So you have on a general, you have tonic, 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 myotonic, and akinetic or atonic seizure under generalized seizure. Now under here, um, what is important under here is another, another, when you hear tonic, tonic seizure, um, the seizure begins for a few seconds with a tonic episode. Tonic means the client is having stiffness of the body. That's mean tonic. Now the client will start with a stiffness of the body, and then the client goes into loss of consciousness. On a tonic, tonic seizure, it starts with tonic episode. Then the client resort resort into having a loss of consciousness. Um, it lasts for one to two minutes. Um, then the client can have jerking movement of the body that will follow by the tonic episode. The client will have jerking that comes after tonic episode. Um, the client will stop breathing during the tonic phase of the seizure. The client will stop breathing and the client will become uh, and become irregular during the tonic phase. So the client might breathe and stop breathing in a, in a tonic phase of the seizure condition. The client might be cyanotic that might that might be that, that might derive due to um, breathing irregularities. So when the client is having this irregular breathing pattern, the client will have these problems coming in for breathing. And uh, the client might bite the tongue. So the nurse wants to check the tongue out. There's a the client is biting the tongue. We do, we do not put tongue blade in the mouth anymore. It is an OH thing, it does not work anymore. So after the seizure, let's check the client's mouth. While the client bit the tongue, it provides care for it. The client might have incontinence that might come with the tonic-clonic seizure. The client will have incontinence. The client will urinate. Um, and uh, the client will have confusion when it comes to tonic-clonic seizure. The client will lose consciousness in tonic-clonic seizure. That's what happened in the tonic-clonic phase of the generalized seizure. In the tonic phase, the tonic phase, in this phase, the client only experiences tonic episode of the seizure, and that's why we say the client will have the tonic seizure. So we have tonic, clonic, we have tonic phase, and we have clonic phase. In the first one, the client experiences both phases of the seizure. The client will experience the stiffness, and the client will experience the jerking. In the tonic phase, the client will only experience the stiffness of the body. So the client will lose consciousness of the body and the client will experience increased muscle tones. The client will experience loss of consciousness and the client will have autonomic, autonomic symptoms which include arrhythmia, the client will have apnea, the client will have vomiting, 
The client will have incontinence, the client will have salivation, the spit, or the saliva will foam in the mouth. Now, these are symptoms you want to understand and link to these different phases of the seizure condition. So in the case of a, so in the case of the tonic phase, the client is going to have autonomic symptoms, which are said they include vomiting, incontinence, uh, salivation, and apnea. These are signs and symptoms of autonomic symptoms the client will experience in the case of the tonic phase of this of the generalized seizure. Uh, the seizure usually lasts for 30 seconds. In, in the tonic seizure, it lasts for 30 seconds. You want to understand and remember this part, this numbers in the end that is very important. Then the third stage is the chronic phase. In the chronic phase, the client only experience the client will experience only the chronic features of the chronic phase because it is just chronic. Now in this phase, the seizure lasts several minutes. So the seizure will last longer than the tonic phase of seizure. In this phase, um, the muscle contracts and relax. The client becomes weak. So there will be muscle contraction and muscle relaxation in the case of the chronic phase seizure. That's what happened in the chronic phase. Then we have the myoclonic phase. In the myoclonic phase, the seizure consists of brief jerking and stiffening of the extremity. So only the client will have jerking, it will be brief, brief jerking, and the client will have um, uh, uh, the client will have uh, stiffening of the extremities, which can be symmetrical, meaning both extremity can have at the same time, or it could be asymmetrical, it could be just one extremity could be having the could be having the jerking movement. Now this seizure lasts for seconds. Then we have the last under here, which is the akinetic or the atonic phase. Under here, the seizures are carried over a few seconds in which there is a muzzle tone loss. So the client will lose muzzle tone. That's why we say it is atonic. So when I say atonic, the client will lose the muzzle tone, the muzzle strength, and they will become flaccid, they will become weak, they will not have control over the muzzle. Now, sometimes the names of this condition can tell exactly what the symptoms are in these conditions. Um, then the client gonna have um, the client will have the seizure will come in and the client will have period of confusion, the client will have loss of muscle tones and frequently resort into fall, and the client will fall in the case of the atomic seizure. Now, these are the five subcategories that fall under. Generalized seizure. So you can look it up and uh, do more on it. Then we have the partial seizure. The partial seizure is a second portion. The partial seizure, under here we have um, we have the simple and the complex partial seizure. We have the simple and we have the complex partial seizure. Under the partial seizure, it involves just one hemisphere of the brain. The brain has two divisions, the left and right hemisphere. In generalized seizure, there is an excessive, uncontrollable release of neurological impulses that affect both hemispheres. That's why we call it the generalized seizure. In the partial seizure, there is an excessive, uncontrollable releases of impulses that affect just one portion 
of the brain. It might be the left hemisphere or the right hemisphere. So the client has a partial breakdown of the hemisphere of the brain. Under here, um, we have two types. Under, under the simple partial seizure, the client maintains consciousness throughout. So under here, the client is conscious. That's why I want to remind you, the client is conscious under simple partial seizure. Through all the seizures, the client remains conscious. Under here, um, the attendance of seizure can consist of unusual sensation. The client will have what we call deja vu. So the client will have deja vu of some past experience. The client will have these symptoms. Deja vu will occur under simple partial seizure. The client will have some unpleasant or unusual smell. The client might have some unusual light flashes in the eyes, or the client might have some transient headache that might come in before the client gets an experience seizure. It happens in the simple partial seizure. Under here, the client will have some other autonomic symptoms, which include changes in the client's heart rate. The client might have abnormal flushing. The client is going to have unilateral abnormal extremity movement. The client might have pain or the client might have smell. That's why I said the client might have transient headache. The client might have some lights in the eye that comes and go. The client might have uh, diff just unusual things will happen to the client under the simple partial seizure. Under the complex partial seizure, this second type, under here, it is a kind of other automatism condition. That is behavior that the client is unaware of, such as lip smacking and picking at clothes. The client might have some condition that the client is not, the client will not know what's happening to what's happening in their life. They might sit and just keep when the seizure occurs for some seconds and it will stop. Sometimes they might just remain focused and just keep doing like this, like this, like this for some seconds. After that period, it will stop. So this complex, simple, simple partial seizure, the Complex partial seizure, the client does not maintain consciousness. In partial seizure, in the simple in, in a simple death, the client maintains consciousness throughout the seizure condition. Um, under here also, the seizure can cause loss of consciousness or blackout for several minutes. The client might have some blackout for several minutes. The client might be unconscious. The client might have amnesia um, after the seizure. On a complex partial seizure. So those are the difference between the complex and the simple partial seizure. Then the third seizure is the unclassified seizure. So the third one becomes the unclassified seizure. Now for the unclassified seizure, uh, under here, um, it is idiopathic, meaning we do not know the cause of the seizure. Under here, it does not fit within the two categories of seizure we talked about earlier. It does not fit within the, 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 the generalized or the partial seizure. Um, it is it accounts for half of all seizure conditions in activities in seizure uh, 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 in seizure war. In the war of seizure, most of the seizure conditions we see is idiopathic. The causes are not known. So they fall under unclassified seizure. Um, like I said, the procedure of choice for this condition is the EEG that we talked about yesterday. So the EEG is the procedure of choice that we do to diagnose seizures. Um, we also do MRI, we do CT scan, 
we do pet scan that I ask you to do an assignment on it. We do cat scan. We do score X-ray to identify the seizure, where is where where is occurring, and what is the cause for the seizure. For seizure treatment, um, you, for the nursing management, it's very common. We've all have heard before, but we're going to go over that again. You protect the client privacy. That is very important. When a client is around injury or thing that might cause injury, then the furniture, you move the furniture away or you move the client away from the furniture. You do not want to restrict the client body. You let the client to have the seizure from start to end, monitor the, the time the seizure started and when it ended. Um, you want to make sure the client losing, losing the client with the client having neck tie or some restricted clothing. You want to try to loosen those which are clothing. You do not restrain the client. You want to like a. You do not attempt to open the client jaw. Maybe the client is biting the tongue. You do not attempt to do that. You document the onset, the duration, the seizure, and the findings. If the client had incontinence, apnea, loss of consciousness, you want to document everything, and then you want to review the client after the after after the time, after the seizure. Tell the client vital sign. You perform neurological check for the client after seizure. We perform neural check because it is a neural condition. We want to make sure that the vital signs are all in the normal range. We want to also make sure that the client is oriented and uh, the client is reoriented to the environment. Determine the client experience an aura. What is aura? An aura is a sensation. A U R A. Aura. It is a sensation that the client might feel before the seizure. It could be light flashes, it could be some other smells in the client, some, some other smells in the client nose. Those are what we call aura. It comes before the seizure. It happens to the client. So you want to know why the client is having seizures, the client has aura before the seizure. You look at these things. Um, then the client has medications, you want to administer the medication as much as possible to prevent the seizure occurring. That is the goal. The goal is to always, if the client is a known seizure patient, to always administer the drugs on time to prevent the client from having an episode. So we use other techniques. We use the vital nerve stimulator, the VNS as a treatment, the vital nerve stimulator, stimulator. We use this for the VNS. It is a little magnet that is placed, they put a metal in the client's chest and they have a little magnet that the client carries around, travel along with. When the client has a seizure, the seizure is recurrent. So clients who use, clients who use, who, who, who use the VNS, they do not respond to medication. So we use a little magnet that is built in the chest and we have a little magnet outside that will swap one or twice when the client is having seizure episode. That is the VNS. Um, so the VNS, um, we always care of us when the client has it. Sometimes they might do other procedure, like surgical, uh, surgical procedure to try to like, uh, provide good treatment for the client. So the client might have what we call status epileptic, which is a medical problem. The client might have complication which is called status epilepticus, epilepticus, which is 
a complication of seizure. In this condition, uh, the seizure does not go away. The, 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 the seizure um, lasts for more than five minutes. If a seizure lasts for more than five minutes, the client is going to complication which is called status epilepticus. Um, in this case, um, there might be substance, it, it, it can also come in substance withdrawals, um, sudden withdrawal of the AEDs, that is the anti-epileptic medications, or when the client has head injuries, the client has cerebral edema, infection, and other metabolic disturbances, the client can experience this particular complication. So, on the medicine and airway, provide a client O2, we establish an IV access line, we do EKG monitoring, and we look at the client pulse oximetry and we do ABGs monitoring. When the client has status epileptics, these are things we do for the client to maintain the client, uh, to make sure the client is okay. So we also serve, we also administer lorazepam or we call diastats. So we can administer diastats when the client has, um, when the client has this particular condition. Meaning the seizure lasts for more than five minutes, we want to administer diastat. But in modern day medicine, the seizure is above five minutes, you want to call 911, then you administer the medication. Because just in case, if the drug is administered, the drug did not take effect, then you're going to have a backup of 911 to a doorstep. Any question?